0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host, as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Civil
2: War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich. In 1861, a young farmer from Minnesota named David Brainerd Griffin left his wife Minerva and their three children to join the 2nd Minnesota Volunteer Infantry Regiment. Over the next two years, he wrote 100 letters home to his family that tell a story that is both mundane and extraordinary, a story of the heroism of day-to-day living both in the Army and at home on the farm. These letters and their story of courage, sacrifice, and heartbreak passed down through the family are now in print as My Dear Wife and Children, Civil War Letters from a Second Minnesota Volunteer, edited by Nick K. Adams. We'll talk with Nick Adams tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War
2: Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of east carolina university in greenville north carolina it's dark it's the autumn of 2015 and with the end of daylight savings time it's pitch black outside cloudy (coughs) rainy uh good night to be inside sharing civil war stories with you i hope you are safe wherever you are and although i am here protected by the building built uh by the bequest of Lawrence F. Brewster and the taxpayers of North Carolina, I'm not speaking for the UNC system or its eventual next president or uh, the next chancellor of ECU, whoever that will be, or anyone else. Just myself and my guest, likewise, will speak only for himself, as we always do here. Well, last week I was speaking for myself in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, a week ago, Monday, at the Civil War Roundtable there. Uh, thanks to everyone there for their hospitality. It was a pleasure to chat with people afterwards, including uh, some listeners to this show. appreciate very much your kind words and hope you continue to listen. I apologize for there not being a live show last week. That was my own doing, not our potential guests. I did not get the word back to him in time about our uh, procedures and that that was my fault and won't happen again. We'll get him set up to come back and talk about uh, quite an interesting book on uh, Our Man in Charleston. That'll be uh, sometime early in the spring, or maybe February of 2016. Uh, Last week was another uh, delightfully crazy week of college football here in the United States. Uh, My home team, Michigan Wolverines, Performed well. The ECU Pirates—they're—they're they're slumping. We're not going to say anything about them. Maybe they'll get it turned around this week. But the uh, Wolverines managed to hang on for a, a double overtime victory over Indiana. And this week, our arch rivals, Michigan State and Ohio State, play one another. And all I can think of is Abraham Lincoln at the 1858 uh, debate with Stephen Douglas at Alton, discussing uh, Douglas and in his feud with the, the Democrat, Douglas, in his feud with the Buchanan Democratic administration over uh, policy on slavery in the territories, Kansas, uh, the, the uh, uh, popular sovereignty, all those issues. And Lincoln said uh, about their, their battle that he urged each of them to continue to fight uh, as hard as possible uh, he said, all I can say now is to re, uh, is to recommend to him what I then commended, to prosecute the war against one another in the most vigorous manner. I say to them again, go it, husband, go it, bear. Uh, then Lincoln, of course, is quoting the frontier joke of the wife watching her shiftless husband <clears throat> wrestling uh, for his life with a bear, and she really doesn't care who wins. Uh, go it, husband, go it, bear. There's something in it for Michigan if uh, Ohio State wins, but but I'll just leave it at that. Uh, I hope they have a vigorous game and wear each other out. Well, back here uh, at the show, thanks as always to everyone who has donated to Civil War Talk Radio and what traditionally is referred to as the Book Fund or Book and Beverage Fund or Book and Cigar Fund. I don't think I smoked a cigar in Uh, 40 years perhaps, but I could uh, with the money that you send me, but this season we're using it all for Heritage Hall, the new history project here at East Carolina University. I know it's not a Civil War project, but it is a public history project, and if the administration likes public history and what I do in my day job, it'll help them tolerate uh, what we do here in the evening at Civil War Talk Radio a little longer. And basically basically help them keep uh, aware of the importance of history in the public sphere. So your donations are very welcome, much appreciated. Uh, If you can send $30 to Civil War Talk Radio, go to impedimentsofwar.org and click on the PayPal button. If you do that, I will pass that money along to the program, to the the Heritage Hall uh, program. And it will go to a good cause. You won't get to declare a tax deduction. Uh, I only will, because I'll have to declare it as a tax gain when I get the money, so it'll be a wash for me. But it's what we need to do in order to uh, keep the Heritage Hall program moving forward. So I do appreciate those who've uh, ponied up. This is the one and only fun drive in the 12 years of Civil War talk radio, so uh, the sooner or more of you send your hard-earned cash this way, the sooner we can get that over with. One more personal word before we move on. Happy birthday to Caroline, my older daughter, who turned 24 yesterday. Uh, Can't wait to see you next week at Thanksgiving, which reminds me there will be no live show next week. Uh, On November 25th, it will be the night before Thanksgiving, and we'll be on the road out to Asheville, North Carolina, leaving behind a a large uh, armed guard uh, within the house. So to all criminals listening to the show, don't think you'll get easy pickings. Uh, We'll have the alarms turned on and everything else. But uh, we'll be on the road. Many of you, I suppose, will be traveling. Please uh, do so carefully. And we'll come back uh, the week after on December 2nd with Nancy Dane as our guest. Uh, she's author of children's books about the Civil War, also young readers books, and in the process of doing this has done a lot of research on Arkansas in the Civil War, uh, in the in primary sources. So it will be interesting to get her take on that period, what she's found, and how she presents it to different audiences. And then on December 9th, Brian James Egan joins us. He is the co-author along with Jack Dempsey, a longtime friend of the show. Uh, They have written Michigan at Antietam, the Wolverine State's Sacrifice on America's Bloodiest Day, and look forward to having uh, Mr. Egan with us to talk about that. And then it'll be time for the winter break, time for final exams here at ECU, and then commencement, and then everybody relaxes for uh, a few days over the holidays. Uh, Coming back in the new year, I'll be speaking to the Northern Illinois Civil War Roundtable, On uh, Friday, the something or other, the the first, second Friday in in January. And then we'll be back here with more Civil War Talk Radio. The first show of the new year will be January 13th. And our guest will be uh, retired Colonel Matt Spruill, author of numerous uh, Civil War Battlefield Guides and other writings. And he'll be talking with us about uh, his experience putting those together. So lots to come up with, keep your eye on impedimentsofwar.org, and uh, as always, your suggestions for new guests are welcome. Well, tonight uh, we have a guest who has written, uh, well, I should say not written, but edited and produced uh, a really remarkable collection of letters, uh, letters written by David Brainerd Griffin, Corporal Company F, 2nd Minnesota Regiment. the, it's the good fortune of the Civil War community that copies of these letters fell into the hands of Nick K. Adams, and he has published them for us. So let's find out more about this. Uh,
3: Nick, are you there? Yes, Jerry, I am, and glad to be with you tonight.
2: Well, thank, thanks very much for joining us. So. The uh, first question uh, anyone has to ask about uh, a treasure trove of letters like this is, uh, how did you come by them?
3: Well, um, some 25 years ago, they landed in my lap, or uh, copies of them. Um, I didn't know anything about them before that time. Uh, I knew that I had... uh, A grandfather who had fought in uh, the war from Minnesota, and I knew that he had been killed, but that was all. And uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, this had been told me by her by my mother, who was uh, the great granddaughter of uh, uh, Corporal Griffin. And unbeknownst to me, she approached her cousin who was still in possession of the the originals at that point and asked if she could copy them and that was done and my sister brought them in a box to me and said here these are for you i was uh still teaching at the time uh fourth grade and we had a unit on the civil war and uh she knew of my interest but i went home i to, uh, brought them with me, and I read them through, and, and I just wept because of that personal connection that was finally uh, so clear for me uh, after a lifetime of, of learning about the Civil War, that it was really uh, that, that direct connection.
2: Had you been interested in the Civil War before you came across these letters?
3: Something happened in the fourth grade, and it's been too long. I'm 73 now, so I don't remember what it was, but something happened in the fourth grade. I can remember deciding at that time that the Civil War was obviously very interesting, and I wanted to learn about it. Perhaps it was the first time that my mother uh, had had described her great-grandfather to me. I don't know but uh i i began picking up everything that was uh, great appropriate uh but uh, uh through the years expanding that reading everything that i could about the civil war but without without the knowledge of that great personal uh connection through the letters that was there waiting
2: so and you went on to teach uh and so you, you did you teach social studies teach uh, history to students
3: well it was uh yes it, it was part of the fourth grade curriculum we had in the fifth grade curriculum at our school and um, after reading the letters, I knew that I had to use them in my classroom so I uh, put together uh, with the permission of my principal a uh, a unit that used the letters instead of the textbook. And I had the students uh, divide themselves into those who would go with uh, David uh, Brainerd Griffin, my grandfather, and those who would stay be home, like my great-grandmother. And uh, the, as I would read the letters over a three-month period to the class... Uh, They would then be required to create a correspondence, a similar correspondence, historically accurate, uh, researched in the style um, of of, uh, what was happening in the letters at the time that he was writing.
2: Did the students know that your grandfather would not make it home from the war?
3: No. I kept that from them. Uh, until the very end of the unit. I read the 100th the letter uh, every year and sent them out to recess. Mm-hmm. And then when they came back in, I said, oh, there's one more letter. And of course, this is the one from the captain mm-hmm. describing his death at uh, uh, the Reeds Bridge Road uh, in Chickamauga mm-hmm. uh, on the opening minutes of, of the battle. And so I would read that letter and every year, the entire class, boys, everybody, burst into tears because they had so connected with him as a person, and they were so disappointed that he didn't come home, uh, as, as he had expressed so often throughout the letters, uh, to uh, to live with his family again.
2: That, that's... Uh... I, I'm grasping at words here. Uh, you know the spoiler is is there. Uh, when you, you open the book, you don't make a secret from the reader. And even if you tried, I think many of us would do the same thing. We just turn to the back and see what happens uh, as you start to become acquainted with him and want to know about him and and the discovery, and so i'm I'm trying to remember if you say it up front or if I just looked at the last page after a little while. Once I started caring about him and and saw, no, he's not going to make it back, Uh, and and it was hard enough turning the last few pages knowing uh, the, the fate, but if I were a fifth grader... Uh, Yeah, I would have burst into tears, too. I'm sure Mm. that would have been uh, uh, difficult. In fact, we're going to take a short break so I can compose myself and we can return and talk more about uh, My Dear Wife and Children, Civil War Letters from a Second Minnesota Volunteer, uh, a marvelous collection of Civil War Letters edited by Nick K. Adams, who's our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u-dot-e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. We're talking tonight with Nick K. Adams. He's the editor of My Dear Wife and Children, Civil War Letters from a second Minnesota volunteer. It is a collection of letters uh, by David Brainerd Griffin of the 2nd Minnesota. It's published by Strategic Book Publishing and Rights Company. Uh, figure out where we can get hold of copies. I'll give you the website in a few minutes uh, if you're interested, uh, which which you should be. It's quite a, a fascinating story. So, uh, so, Nick, you got these letters. Uh, you came across copies of these letters through your family Use them in your classes, teaching elementary school children about Civil War. Uh, how did you decide to publish them, and what was the process?
3: Well, uh, that was not my intent. Uh, originally, when I retired um, eight or so years ago, uh, I, I used the letters for a, a children's novel that was based on uh, classroom experiences teaching uh, using the letters and um, I then after that was done and, and quite, quite well received I um, s- started a second project where I wanted to tell the story of the children at home uh, the two daughters and the infant son um, with their mother trying to hold the farm together until Pa's return And I was working my way through that when my sister called one day, the sister who had given me the letters. And Louise said, uh, I think you need to do the letters. I says, well, no, I'm into this other writing project. She said, no, you need to do the letters first. So uh, I I laid aside the second novel, which I'm finally back to, but uh, I laid it aside and spent the next two years Um, transcribing the letters very carefully. The editor kept correcting the spelling and the punctuation. No, no, I wanted it exactly the way he wrote it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and researching the historical footnotes and writing the introductory material, which you're aware of. uh, And then brought it to the, the same publisher who had done my first Uh, book, and they said right away, yes, they'd be glad to do it again.
2: Well, it is really a a nicely produced book, I will say. The editing is, uh, you have a very light hand. Uh, There are notes identifying a few figures that we might not know, and some of the major, more important generals who are mentioned who Mm-hmm. Most readers interested enough to pick up this book will probably already know who some of them are.
3: Uh, oh, yes. But, but, I was actually doing it for family rather mm-hmm. than uh, an expanded audience. Uh, sh- my my sister wanted this to be available to our family. So as I, as I did those footnotes, it was intended for people who didn't know, who wouldn't know all those names.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it, I think it works really well. I, uh, it, it, the lightness of it—I uh, mean, it, it lets the letter writer speak for himself. It, it, there's a brief introduction to each set of letters while they're camped at a given place. I found myself actually skipping over the uh, the little introductory bits before each set, where you describe where they where they go and what happens, and reading mm-hmm. the letters first and then going back and looking at that. Uh, it would make a summary. To, uh-huh. As a summary. Uh, just just to make it more fun as I'm reading the letters, to let Corporal Griffin tell me what's happening uh, and then yeah. go back and confirm that I, I didn't misunderstand it. But he's very clear in, in his writing. It's very The, the style is very straightforward. Uh, it, it did not surprise me to learn that uh, one of his daughters marries a cousin of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh, eventually, that, because I told my wife about this book. I read a book each week for the, the show here, and uh, some weeks I'll say, well, this, you know, this is a technical book. I said, you might want to read this one. Uh, it's, it's like reading Little House on the Prairie if, if one of the relatives had gone off to the war. The, the tone of 19th century writing, the sincerity and, and uh, uh, just openness with which he writes is very affecting
3: well, that's really happening in the second novel because uh, the mother and, and daughters are having to do all of those farm chores uh, alone—the butchering, the animal care, the uh, taking care of, getting all the field work done—and uh, so there's there's lots of parallels to Little House on the Prairie things, mm-hmm. uh, but. We don't have the letters that they wrote to him. In fact, right. I'm not sure if you. He, at one point, he says he has to burn the letters. He has no way of saving them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he references he uh, references the things that they had said in in their letters to him about what they were doing, where they were going, what was happening, the the local issues, and and the farm problems that that, that were coming up. He references that as he writes back to them. I'm simply lifting that material out because I know they did those things or they had those problems and then creating the historical scene uh, for it to happen and then write him uh, their letter, uh, which we don't have. But it's it's a very fun, creative process for me. I'm about uh, two-thirds done with that uh, work.
2: It's uh, That is an interesting project. It's one of the historiographical problems of the Civil War is that we have so many collections of letters and journals saved from soldiers because if they came home, they knew how important this was. And if they didn't, their families especially knew how important it was to save these last words from their loved ones. But the letters flowing the other direction uh, couldn't be saved. The soldiers couldn't carry a library of letters around with them. And so we have many fewer of them. It's also interesting that that times have changed. Um, Alpheus Williams is a Union General from Michigan who wrote every day to his family, much like uh, Corporal Griffin did. And the first edition uh, of his letters published the editor back in 1960, said, I've left out all the stuff about his family and what they were doing, Uh, edited that out, and just left the interesting parts about what the Army is doing. Oh, no. (laughs) I know. It's half the story. It's the best half of the story for many people. Uh, yeah. So it it's really something to read those letters. Someone has to go back and do another edition and put all that back in. I think uh, mm. of the of the Alpheus Williams letters. But the uh, uh, what I wanted to ask you about this is, well, let me just toss this out. You you did storytelling based on these letters. Did. Are are there particular stories in these letters that really stick in your mind that you uh, most remember or would most share with people?
3: Oh, yeah. Could I read a uh, short passage? Sure, that would be fine. Um, this is uh, letter 59. They're camped on the Cumberland River in Tennessee, November twenty seventh, 1862. And he says, Now I'll tell you what transpired yesterday or something I shall be apt to remember as long as I live. Now do not be scared, for I'm not hurt any yet, but the rebels have got to shoot at me the second time before they hit me. For well, they've shot at me for the first time, as far as I know anything of yesterday, but they shot about a foot to one side of my legs. Now I'll tell you the circumstances as near as I can. About 10 o'clock, I took two canteens and started down to the river after some water. which was about 80 rods from camp. As I came up to the banks of the river, I saw a man sitting on a horse on the other bank. When I came, he asked me if there was any chance to cross over to this side. Why, well, I told him I was not acquainted with the river and did not know. He then said that he wished that I would take that canoe, and he pointed to one on this side and come over after him as he wanted to get over, and he did not want to take his horse over. Well, I told him that I could not row a canoe. Now, I'm not sure about this. Here's a Minnesotan confessing (laughs) that he doesn't know how to row a canoe. Well, he said that it was not anything to row one, but he would give me a dollar if I would come over after him. I told him that I could not go after him and ask him what he wanted to get on this side for. Well, I began to think he was a rebel. He said that he did not want to get across as much as he wanted to get the boat over there. He'd see me back all safe. I told him that he could not catch me as easy as that. And upon that, I heard him speak to someone else and ride off into a cornfield. I could then see another man laying by the side of a tree. I then stepped back to make sure that I saw someone, and I stood out about four feet from the tree in plain sight and was standing there when crack went a rifle and Quiz Went a little bullet about halfway up to my knee and about a foot from my leg. I then saw another man step from behind a tree, some four rods from where the one lay, which was the one that fired at me. I then stepped behind the tree and I took a good look up and down the river, but saw no other men but the three. And I came back to camp and reported to the colonel. He sent down seven men with me and told us if we could see anyone that looked suspicious to drop him if we could. But we did not get a sight of, it, of them again. We destroyed the boat and came back to camp. So we all had something to talk about the rest of the day. But they've got to shoot better than that or they will not hit me. Today, there's not much stir in camp. Wow. Now, now you'll never find that story in a history book.
2: No, it's, it's a one-person it, it's too, skirmish.
3: Yeah, It's a one-person skirmish. It's too personal. It's, it's too real. And there, there are incidents like that throughout, uh, where he gets initiated into the cavalry and uh, uh, other things.
2: It, the way he he writes is very interesting, uh, and the way you've reproduced it in the book. He does not use a lot of punctuation, so no. you, you've got some pictures of the letters themselves. We can see he had, he had excellent penmanship, uh, but the the punctuation is, is essentially missing, so it's all one long run-on story. But when you read, read it aloud, you can hear where the pauses are, hmm. uh, where, where it's as if he's speaking out loud to Minerva and putting it on paper.
3: Yes. It's, it's, he's so articulate, and his descriptions of the things that he's experiencing are so vivid. I think that's part of what makes this such a personal. Uh, a narrative for the reader, and why my uh, my school children were able to relate uh, to him with him so uh, so strongly.
2: It, and it's a it's a fine line there to to tread that he he does. Of course, he wasn't intending to do this. I just finished reading uh, the letters of uh, uh, Francis Barlow, a Union general. They were edited by uh, the last guest we had on the show, Chris Cimito. He edited them some years ago. It's not the book we discussed on the show, uh, mm-hmm. but I found it in the store. And Barlow is, is Harvard-educated. Uh, listeners to the show will be fascinated to know that I have a Harvard degree. Um, the, he, he's Harvard-educated, and yet his letters are short and self-centered and really not very interesting. Uh, Chris's editing made it okay, but the letters were boring. Uh, He was not a very good writer. And so then when I began reading this book, the contrast was stunning. Here is this Minnesota farmer who was far more uh, attractive as a personality than this Harvard-educated general, Uh, and, and... you know, how did he get? What kind of education did did Griffin have? Uh, to, I understand to that well? he
3: uh, had a high school education uh, in Vermont, where he was raised before uh, they married and and moved to Minnesota, uh, w- which would would be unusual for at least a Minnesota farmer uh, at the time. But it certainly is expressed not only in his handwriting, as you commented, but in his ability to. Uh, creatively write and describe uh, what he's experiencing,
2: and and yet he, he's not he's not writing for publication. There are other l- collections of letters. I'm sure some listeners have read. You know, Wilbur Fisk comes to mind, uh, which are written expressly with the thought that these are going to go in the newspapers when they get home.
3: But oh no, Griffin, no, this was Griffin, for his family.
2: But he a couple of times he says go ahead and share this with, uh, you know, friends and neighbors. It's not just between mm-hmm. him and his wife, in other words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so he's a little more open.
3: Um, well, it, it, that was easier than him having to write uh, everybody. Mm-hmm. It was a way of writing one letter and, and then go ahead and let it circulate. He wouldn't have to write several times.
2: But at the same time, he, he's still... Uh, emotional well well, I to talk about the level of emotional intimacy with his wife in these letters uh, what do you see
3: there? Um, there's it, it goes back and forth there's one little place where he says that you didn't comment on the note that I included in my last letter uh, that was for your eyes only <laughs>
2: um,
3: and he's He's not well this is mid-19th century, so he's not really emotional, uh, affectionately emotional, other than other than how often he talks about getting a letter and secreting himself to his tent and then crying as he reads uh, the little missives that the daughters and, and his wife have sent. Uh, and and there are the occasional outbursts where he's describing how much he misses them he knew that he loved them before he left but until they were so far apart he didn't realize how much he loved them and and that seems uh, unusual to me for the period
2: well and he, he is very sincere very direct and, and as you say he mentions it that- all the time I mean, the title is well chosen dear wife and children uh they're clearly very dear to him but at the same time he'll then sign the letter your friend and companion db griffin uh you know they don't use nicknames uh, uh when they they sign off to each other uh he refers to his wife as nerva short for minerva but
3: uh D- the and combination he goes by of Brainerd, so I I understand it's yeah. the typical mid nineteenth century practice. You take your middle name rather than your first name.
2: It's very interesting that the the, the combination of formality and uh, you know sincerity and and it's a different generation, different era where you know irony was not nearly as as common a mode of discourse as as sincerity, mm-hmm. and they 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 speak openly like this. Uh, but again, I guess that may be one of the appealing things about this book is, is you know, how clearly he he's, he misses his wife and children. He wants to know about them. He writes directly to his children on several occasions. Yes, uh, which is very uh, affecting. But uh, for all that, he never wavers in the idea that this is his duty to serve in the army. Could no. you talk about? Well, well, we're going to take a break in, in a minute, and that's a big topic. so let me just I'll put it on the table. You can think about it over the break. Um, given how much he loves his wife and children, uh, how he notes there are others back in Minnesota who haven't done their share, uh, how he has done all this, and given that he expresses, uh, on several occasions he's definitely not an abolitionist, uh, why is he fighting? And why is he willing to continue fighting? And uh, why does his will and his wife's will never waver on this point? So we're going to take a a break on that big question and come back, and uh, Nick will hear your answer to it when we return. We're talking today with Nick K. Adams, editor of My Dear Wife and Children, Civil War Letters from a Second Minnesota Volunteer. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Nick K. Adams, the author, editor of My Dear Wife and Children, Civil War Letters from the Second Minnesota Volunteer. It is the collection of letters from a corporal in that regiment who sent 100 letters home to his wife and children uh, 1861 through 1863, and they give a really remarkable day to day portrait of what it was like serving uh, in the Army of the Ohio, later the Army of the Cumberland. And by reflection, uh, since he talks and asks his wife a lot about how things are going on at home, we get some sense of what the home life was like. And the question we left at the end of our second segment was, why enlist and why stay, given how much he missed his family and how uh, he did his duty, uh, what, what was his duty? Why did he go and why did he stay in the, in the Army?
3: You gave me a chance to uh, look up just a couple of uh, brief references, if I may. Sure. Um, He uh, was uh, serving as a cook, and um, initially he was chosen as the second cook, and so he's not um, with uh, the fighting company before their first battle. He says, um, I. It's very likely that there will be some fighting before long. I cannot tell whether I shall be in the ranks or not, but if I am needed, I shall not flinch a particle, but shoulder my gun and fight even till the last drop of blood is shed. I have not the least desire to return home until the war is ended, for I think that I am in a good cause and that I am working for the good of my family and friends as well as my country. Uh, and then he adds, well, um, no, that's as far as I wanted to go with that. Oh. Um, and then later on uh, in, uh, 18, in uh, uh, July of what? 1862, uh, mm-hmm. he extends that idea. I do not see, but we have got to stay and fight it out for the next two years. Uh, that's kind of uh, prescient for uh, the length of the, of the war. But I hope not, I hope not for the sake of the country and for the sake of our loved ones at home. And I do not know as there's anyone who has got any wife or children that would give any more to see them uh, than would your humble servant. But if I should have to stay two years longer... I do not know what I should do. Uh, You will have to go right on and make your calculations as to living just the same as though I was never coming home again. And then if I should not get home this fall, you'll be all right. Uh, God knows I wish that I could be there, but I have enrolled my name for the cause of the Union. And if there is any prospect of its prospering, I want to be among the ones that help maintain the government. But if not, let us come to some terms that is not too humiliating, but never give up the principles of the union. Uh, so he's very clearly a unionist,
2: mm-hmm. and he
3: sees this as the issue. He often talks about the secessionists or the rebels uh, as traitors, is his uh, very common word,
2: mm-hmm. that the
3: idea of breaking up the union is a traitorous act. You were talking also about slavery and uh, yes. i'm i'm uh, I'm touched as the farther south he goes and experiences uh the horrors the realities of slavery his mm-hmm. descriptions uh, of not only of the slaves but of slavery itself uh, are really deepened in their thought uh, as uh, he ends up saying uh, Described slavery as a curse to the soil,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and that uh, he, it, the outcome of the war should not only be the salvation of the Union, the restoration of the Union, but the destruction of slavery because it is so evil.
2: It it really is interesting to see that that evolution. He's he was never, uh, I would say, even indifferent, uh, much less pro slavery. But certainly, it does deepen. I, he he uses the N word frequently early on, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which was the style of the time. But he begins to use the word Negroes more frequently later in the letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's conscious on his part or not, you know, one can't tell. Uh, or just plain but,
3: slave instead of uh, right the the other appellation.
2: Yes, and and he also, uh, it struck me, uh, Jonathan White was on the show uh, earlier this year, he's written a book about the Union soldiers who voted for Lincoln in 1864, and his point is many of them are still Democrats, they want the war to be prosecuted, but they're not Republicans and they're not uh, the least bit interested in the fate of the slaves, and uh, Griffin is is in between that. He he says at one point, "I'm a Republican, but not an abolitionist." But he's very anti-slavery because it will hurt the Southern war effort. He doesn't want. He, he doesn't yes,
3: with, express with the, the idea emancipation, of emancipation with the Emancipation yes. Proclamation. He says this. I see this as as good. This will help mm-hmm. us win the war.
2: Exactly. He, he he supports it. He wants the the Confederacy to be beaten. He never envisions that the slaves will be free and part of a multicultural United States. But he, when he encounters slaves, he treats them with with uh, a degree of humanity Mm -hmm. that uh, is is striking for someone who has never perhaps seen an African person of African descent in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, At one
3: point, he says, uh, "People say that they have no." Uh, that they're not really human; they have no soul. But uh, it, it, it talking with them, he says they really do have a heart. They are like they are a man like me.
2: Yeah, it's an educational process, and yeah.
3: I, I, I have a very my soft personal spot experience.
2: This. Exactly. Yeah. In my my first book was about the Army of the Ohio, and I, I read a lot. Uh, I read Judson Bishop's book and many others, uh, preparing mm-hmm. that, and so I have a real soft spot for this campaign because I I know a little bit about it and uh, that process was not at all uncommon among soldiers from the upper Midwest who were in the Army of the Ohio to become more and more anti-slavery as they uh, Mm -hmm. encountered the reality of it. Now Mm -hmm. another thing that sticks out in almost every letter is money. Uh, Money is obviously on his mind uh, making sure that the family at home has enough. Uh, Uh, Yeah.
3: -hmm. And and I'm was this common for them to be four, five, six months behind in in payment of the men?
2: Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that was not at all uncommon. Payday was uh, was rare. Uh, The when the paymaster arrived, it was a big deal. And uh, uh, so, yeah, are any of those
3: Minnesota funds, or are they all federal funds?
2: The veterans, uh, the, the volunteers, are, are making $13 a month as as federal volunteers. So if the state is paying them anything else, a bounty or a regular amount, that's separate. Mm. But the regular pay he's getting is federal money. Is federal and, money, okay. Right. That uh, From which they can, you would get $13 plus uh, essentially room and board, Uh so it's not a lot, and, and I was sort of mentally counting up how much he was able to send home. Uh, and he's able to do well. He also makes money. He, he does washing for other people. He does washing, <laughs> nickel a nickel apiece. For... You know, it adds up. He, he does okay. Now, one other thing struck me about this was that he always seems to know what's going on around the country. He, he's, his letters are full of war news from other fronts. And sometimes it's inaccurate, like Vicksburg... Uh, is going to fall, he reports time after time. But there are other occasions where he writes a letter, and I look at the date, and he's heard about the attack on Charleston within a few days of it happening. Mm-hmm. Or, or he's, uh,
3: He seems to be a voracious reader of newspapers. Mm-hmm. And uh, he will often package them up and send them home uh, accompanying his letters. Uh, but I assume there are also, uh, oftentimes he'll describe uh, uh, rumors in camp that mm-hmm. such and such has happened. So it, there it must is... be th- some telegraphed information that circulates from the the higher officers down to the men.
2: The, exactly. One, one has to presume that. But I, I found it very interesting to see how well informed he was, and how interested he was, certainly, in what was happening to the Army of the Potomac. Or to Grant's forces at Vicksburg, uh, always keeping track of that.
3: Uh, but it is humorous how often he has to change the message. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> true. He doesn't
2: doesn't get it right, uh, but he, he's always doing it. I had, at one point when I first started reading, these letters were so on point as examples of of the much of what I have come to understand about the soldier's life. Uh, and then the information he was passing on was so accurate. I, I thought at one point, could this be a forgery? Could this be like just a too-good-to-be-true set of letters? Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm not accusing you of that, believe me. But uh, that, that's how interesting they were. Um, uh, if you wanted to write a, a novel from scratch in the form of letters, mm-hmm. uh, this would be a way to do it. Now, I think to a non-Civil War uh, student, these might not... Well, I take it back. The, the fifth graders uh, uh, went for it. Um, so I'd, I'll leave it at that. They're, they're, they're really good. Uh, with just a few minutes left, let me ask one more question about uh, Corporal okay. Griffin. Uh, his religion, he, he refers to that, it's like an undertone. He, he doesn't preach, he doesn't weigh heavily on it, but it comes up here and there.
3: Yes. Uh, apparently a universalist uh, Unitarian Universalist, um, They, they be, the family begins when they arrive in Connecticut in the early 18th century. They are Congregationalists. Mm-hmm. Um, they withdraw from the Congregational Church and become Methodists uh, by the time they move up to Vermont. And then I, I guess it's sometime in Vermont that the family then changes from Methodist to Unitarian. Um, so when he's
2: writing home, there's there's a sense that if we don't meet on earth, we'll meet in heaven. He, he seems very confident,
3: yes, very strong. That's probably fifty of the letters have some reference to that uh, out of the hundred, so nearly half.
2: It, but it's a very uh, uh you know it, it's a, a confident faith but it's not a preachy one uh, you you don't get the sense that he he talks about having fun with the other boys there are snowball fights and uh activities he doesn't he doesn't drink uh he drinks coffee uh that that's a revelation to his wife uh but while he doesn't drink he he doesn't come across as as prissy
3: uh no uh, He's a little older than most of the other men. He's in his 30s instead of true. his 20s. And he often calls them his, the boys. <laughs> uh, and they're surprised that he is as lively as he uh, is, given his age.
2: His advanced age at 32, that's right. Do you have time for uh, a
3: quick story?
2: Uh, we only have about under a minute, if you can... Okay, uh, Why not then. Uh But, you know, what we're going to do is urge all listeners to get a copy of this book. Uh, The publisher is Strategic Publishing and Rights Company. Their website is sbprabooks, that's all one word, sbprabooks.com, slash Nick K. Adams will get you to this book. Uh, If It's worth,
3: go ahead. Or www.civilwarletters.com with hyphens between the two words.
2: That's even better. Uh, www.civil-war-letters... Is that right? Dot hyphens .com. All the way. Uh-huh.
3: .com. Um, listeners, you will... And then I can personally autograph it to them. All the better.
2: Uh, I, I think it's a... Uh, really, a, both... In, uh, it was a moving book, uh, and it really gives insight into a soldier's experience... Uh, Listeners, you will enjoy reading My Dear Wife and Children, Civil War Letters from a Second Minnesota Volunteer. And, Nick, thanks so much for being on the show tonight.
3: Welcome. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: And, listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.